I truly believe that there is no more powerful force than healthcare to respond to trafficking. Heine Stiglosa is the founding CEO of Heal Trafficking, an emergency physician at Brigham and Women's Hospital with appointments at Harvard Medical School and the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative. Dr. Stiglosa is an internationally recognized expert, advocate, researcher, and speaker on the well-being of trafficking survivors in the U.S. and internationally through a public health lens. She has advised the United Nations, International Organization for Migration, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, U.S. Department of Labor, U.S. Department of State, and the National Academy of Medicine on issues of human trafficking and testified as an expert witness multiple times before the U.S. Congress. Among other accolades, Dr. Stiklosa has been honored with the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Women's Health Emerging Leader Award, the Harvard Medical School Dean's Faculty Community Service Award, has been named as an Aspen Health Innovator and National Academy of Medicine Emergent Leader. Dr. Stiklosa published the first textbook addressing the public health response to trafficking. It's called Human Trafficking is a Public Health Issue, a Paradigm Expansion in the United States. Hi, Dr. Stiklosa. Thank you so much for joining us today at Case Confirmed. How are you doing? Good. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. For starters, can you give us a background and let our listeners know of your professional endeavors? Sure, absolutely. So I am an emergency medicine doctor, and I'm co-founder and CEO of Heal Trafficking. As an emergency medicine physician, what is your day-to-day like? (laughs) There is no uh, regular day, (laughs) actually. So I could be working an overnight shift, I could be working a daytime shift, but I love emergency medicine. I never know what to expect when I walk into a shift. I get to take care of people on the worst days of their lives. It is a real honor and privilege. And do you find yourself surprised on a day-to-day basis on some of the cases that you see? Gosh, um, yes. (laughs) The nature of emergency medicine is that you don't know what you're going to see walking into a shift. And uh, I just, I love it. I love who I get to work with. I love my team um, and I love taking care of patients from, you know, I could be caring for someone who's the, you know, chief executive officer of a fortune 500 company. And then in the next patient room might be someone who's undomiciled um, there for substance use. And I just, I love that variety and I love being able to to help people. That sounds so exciting and so much Mm -hmm. to learn on a day-to-day basis. It is, yeah. And then you said your second role is Chief Executive Officer of Heal Trafficking, which I believe is a nonprofit organization. Can you describe a bit of the mission of this organization and some of the accomplishments and highlights that have happened in the recent years? Yeah, absolutely. So Along with an awesome team, we co-founded Heal Trafficking back in the fall of 2013. And the gap we were trying to fill was the fact that no one was really talking about trafficking in the healthcare space. Very few people, 
Very few clinicians, very few health systems knew that trafficking victims were accessing healthcare and having um, touch points with healthcare. And so we came together to connect the people that were doing, the few people, um, the few beacons of light that were doing this work around the globe, as well as really advance the body of research and advocacy and education to help healthcare move to the next level when it comes to trafficking. You know, when a lot of people think of trafficking, they think about a crime. But so much of the efforts are really focused on law enforcement response. And we know that we can't arrest or prosecute our way out of trafficking, that we need a public health approach. And so um, in our early days, that was what we did. We, we flipped the paradigm to start the conversation around the fact that trafficking is a public health issue. And then in recent years, we've zoomed in laser focused on healthcare's role. And I'm so proud of the community that we've grown. So we have over 4,000 folks in 45 countries around the globe that are part of our broader network. That includes those that have lived experience of trafficking, health professionals, and, and folks from other professions that are accessing our resources and participating in the conversations and discussions. And, and then what we do is also just really build capacity of health systems and health professionals to respond to trafficking. And what that means is that we take health systems, sometimes like five health systems in a region, and we help them think through what plans do they have in place as a, for other victims of violence, um, and how can they build on the infrastructure to respond to trafficking, and how do they do that in a trauma-informed, survivor-centered way. And we get great feedback systems that we work with that it's really helped them to not only help trafficking victims, but gives tools to their staff where they, you know, they knew something was wrong and they didn't, they just didn't know what questions to ask or how to respond. And, and now they're also able to help connect trafficking victims that, um, with resources. So that's really, you know, our health systems work is a really exciting part of our impact over the years. And then the health professionals in the space, it's not just about awareness raising, right? It's not just having trafficking in your radar, but really digging into skills building and helping health professionals to know exactly what to do and when to do it when it relates to trafficking. And so our, our work with education and training is, it includes basic trainings on trafficking, but also in, in working with, you know, Department of Health and Human Services, working with the International Organization for Migration on some of those resources, and then also helping build more trainers to teach other other folks, um, other clinicians about trafficking. And so our Train the Trainers program has not only helped us multiply exponentially the number of teachers that can um, train other health professionals, but also has made those people into champions on trafficking in their health system. So those are, I could go on, <laughs> as you can tell, I could go on and on and on about our impact, but those are some of the things that I'm most proud of over the years. That's so great. This is a much needed endeavor in this field. And so I'm so happy to hear that heel trafficking does address this. One question that came to mind as you were letting our listeners know about heel trafficking, as you know, there's the famous Ethel Gowande's checklist manifesto. Is there something similar of sorts that is available in, in the healthcare field to help address, you know, this topic of trafficking in the sense that like do clinicians have this type of 
um, toolkit per se to be able to address it systematically? Or is that being developed at the current moment? I love that question because I think that high quality care in the healthcare setting needs to have a structure to it. Um, and you need to have a reference to, to, to provide that structure. So yes, that resource exists and I'll talk about it in a second, but what's been part of my own journey of learning as an emergency medicine doctor that I, you know, I inform myself not only with the existing literature, but in conversation with those who've experienced trafficking and across the board, whether you look at the literature on trafficking, literature on domestic violence, talk to trafficking survivors, oftentimes when they talk about their touch points with healthcare and that experience, they feel checklisted. Like literally they will say that phrase verbatim. They feel checklisted in healthcare. They don't, they don't feel seen as a person. And so one of the things that that really caused me to do is to look at like on, on the healthcare side, right? We need structured tools. And then on lived experience is that those structured tools need to be person-centered, right? And they need to be ways of engaging um, patients that that establish trust and are empowering and are not ta- taking power away from or deep dehumanizing a person. So that's my sort of preamble <laughs> to, to start to answer this question. And then, yes, there there is a tool that Heal Trafficking, along with Common Spirit Health and Pacific Survivor Center, created. It's called the PAIR tool. PAIR stands for Privacy, Educate, Ask, and respond. And those are the steps with not just for for someone you might think that might be trafficked, but might be experiencing other forms of violence. It's a structured way of approaching that conversation that allows you to educate and empower. So just, you know, by way of example, you know, uh, many of the patients that I see that are experiencing trafficking, oftentimes they're experiencing substance use as well. And that's why they come to the come to my emergency department is some complication of that substance use. And so I think it's helpful to talk about examples. So, you know, maybe I'm taking care of someone who had a skin infection from injecting IV drugs. And after I've addressed their pain, after I've taken care of their medical problems and any of the acute issues. Right now, healthcare is um, really kind of exploding at the seams, and we're taking care of a lot of our patients in the hallways. But I will find a spot to talk to them alone, or one of my nurses will. And um, I'll say, you know, a number of my patients who use drugs end up meeting the wrong drug dealer, and that drug dealer controls all of their life, maybe threatens them or their family, and they feel like they can't leave that situation. The reason I'm asking you or talking to you about that is this is my as a health professional, I care about your health and I also care about your relationships. And a number of patients that I see have been in um, pretty bad situations. Has that ever happened to you or somebody do you know that you know? And so I'll just wait and pause. So that's like talking through the pair tool. If the P for privacy, educate, A for ask, and I will get a range of responses from there want to know what some of those resources might be. Some people might just walk out of my emergency department at that point. But what they do know is that we have an open door and that success to me, that they know that our emergency department is a place where they can get safe, they can get access to safety and that we do have resources to help them if and when they're in, in a situation to leave. So it kind of flips the script from what a, a lot of people imagine when they think about how, what that trafficking response looks like. So, but it's so vital to be person-centered, to be trauma-informed, and not to impose 
what I think is the right solution for that outcome for that visit. Um, because if I do that, you know, this is an individual whose every inch of their life is being controlled by a trafficker. Do I want to also be trying to take control of that person? No, um, I'm just replicating what their trafficker is doing. And so it's just so vital to take that trauma-informed approach of the pair tool. Right, and have them come to you. And do you feel over time, you know, in your experience with this, you've seen responses or openness move in a positive direction? Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah, I, I do. And then also... Um, just to be honest, the nature of emergency medicine is I, um, you know, whether I'm doing an intervention related to a concern about a violent situation in their life, or whether I'm treating um, a heart attack or an infection, um, I don't often see the outcome um, other visits that, that that they come back to my hospital for. But but what I do know is that I've done the right thing in that moment, right? Um, And when it comes to things like trafficking, my job is to plant that seed. And you never know. And this is this is something that a trafficking survivor said to me once. She said, your job is to plant that seed. You don't know if it's going to take 99 interactions with caring person to feel empowered to leave their situation and or whether whether that's five. But you you don't know where you're at on that person's journey, right? And so you might be the first person on that person's journey and planting that first seed, or you might be the last one. But your job as the clinician is to control planting that seed and and to own that piece and know that you've done the right thing. Of course, and be a part of their journey. And mm-hmm. we can't we can't give up that duty, of course. And this this leads me um into Going back a little bit and asking you, can you talk a bit about your first encounter with the subject of labor and sex trafficking? Was it in the clinical setting or, yeah, if you could provide some insight, that would be good. Yeah. You know, what's what's interesting about this is my first encounter was one where I didn't know what I was seeing, right? As a resident, I it, it was only in retrospect once I learned what trafficking was that I realized that it was a high a highly, highly likely to be a trafficking situation. So as I was going through my training in emergency medicine there, I will always remember this patient where I just had that feeling that like something else was going on. It was just gnawing in my stomach. It's hard to put words to it, but there was this young man who spoke Spanish primarily, and he came in with an injury from working in a restaurant. Like this knife had fallen off a shelf he was um, he was like doing sous chef something back in the kitchen and this knife had fallen off the shelf and had fallen like just perfectly and wrongly onto his arm such that it cut some of his tendons and also an artery. So it was bleeding severely. So we addressed that and um, took care of his injury and kept him alive. And we were able to talk to him all throughout, but the employer kept inserting himself, his boss kept like inserting himself into the situation wanting to control like every time the like, oh, what happened story. He kept wanting to say what the story was. And, you know, fast forward to when I first learned about labor trafficking, when I'd heard about trafficking, it was first like from the movie Taken, to be honest. So I like really only thought it happened to females and it was like sex trafficking. And then when I learned what labor trafficking was, when when I learned that it's employers were coercing their, um, their workers and um, threatening them, maybe withholding wages, maybe um, having a debt that's exerted over them and they're con- um, and then forcing them to work and gaining money from that person's work. I realized like that was probably a labor trafficking situation. And the more that we understand 
you know, I'm doing some research right now to, to see what we what we do know about labor trafficking victims intersections with healthcare. And there is often in this employer interference, the victims of labor trafficking will say like, maybe it's, maybe it's their boss or maybe it's another coworker that comes in, but like into the emergency department or the urgent care center or the primary care center and like really tries to control the communication and what is said and what is not said. And when I learned that, I was like, Oh no, this is, you know, I totally missed that as a resident. When I was being trained before, I really knew what trafficking was. And a nuanced question here. You mentioned two topics, right? There's labor trafficking and then there's sex trafficking. So what are some of the differences and what are some of the similarities? And can one lead to the other and vice versa? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I'm glad you asked it. So, um, you know, I practice medicine in the United States. I was born in the United States. Um, the answer to your question actually is like a little different if we're talking about international context. But in the United States our law that codifies what trafficking is on a federal level basically separates out those two forms of trafficking that you said. So labor trafficking and sex trafficking. What is common uh, among those two is for for something to be considered trafficking, the trafficker has to do something. It's not a passive thing. So they they might be involved in that victim's recruitment. They might be actually the one that's literally overseeing them in their day-to-day work. And then they, there has to be an element of force, fraud, or coercion involved in keeping that person in, in, that, in that exploitative work situation. And then when it comes to labor trafficking, it's basically non-sexual work. So it, what we see in the United States, based on data from the National Human Trafficking Hotline, is that domestic work, um, so nannying, house cleaning, um, that type of work is the number one type of um, labor trafficking, uh, followed by agriculture. So working in any number of the agricultural industries, whether it's, you know, picking apples to um, poultry farming um, for the chicken that we eat. So those are common examples of labor trafficking. And then sex trafficking is when there's commercial sex involved in that exploitation. So a lot of times when I, you know, I mentioned um, in my emergency department, many of the cases that we see are someone that's trading sex in order to pay for drugs. And then they meet that wrong drug dealer who ends up controlling all of their life. So really the difference between those two types of things is the, the type of work that's being exploited, whether it's commercial sex versus other, other forms of labor. Another caveat that's, that is really important is when we talk about kids, there is a big difference between labor and sex trafficking legally. So under the age of 18, anyone engaged in commercial sex is considered a victim of trafficking. And so there does not have to be any force fraud or coercion. Elves can say, hey, I'm doing this to survive. I'm doing this to, you know, um, have a place to sleep. But it's, it's meant the, the law is written that way as a way of protecting those under the age of 18 who are engaging in commercial sex to be treated as victim um, rather than, than a perpetrator. So that's a really important distinction um, that we have in, in the U.S. law. You said that was in the United States. Is that nuanced differently across the globe in different countries or how does it work globally? 
Um, it's just the the words that are used that there's, um, you know, if we're talking about UK, their trafficking law actually calls it modern slavery. So that's, you know, just one example of differences on country level. And then the UN Palermo Protocol outlines on a, you know, global level, what is codified as trafficking or not. And so on a global level, sometimes the, the word forced labor is often used uh, when we're talking about what I just described as labor trafficking situations in the U.S., so they're pretty proximal. Um, and then um, uh, sex trafficking—that term will be used in the international setting. So it's it's there's slightly different terminology, but um, and then I would say another distinction is that in the U.S., organ trafficking dec- does not fall under our tr- in our trafficking human trafficking law. There are other crimes that um, organ trafficking may fall under, but it's it's not in our trafficking law. Whereas the Palermo Protocol and that UN level does incorporate organ trafficking into the definition. Interesting. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, the, whether it's um, sex trafficking or labor trafficking, are there a set of, and, you know, there may be a long list, so maybe we can highlight a few are there certain causes that lead to sex and labor trafficking? And is there anything being done to mitigate some of these causes? Yeah, um, I love that question because it really gets at, like, what are the roots of, of trafficking? And it's also the answers are, are are harder policy answers, but really important ones. So what I mean by that is, like, some of of what drives labor trafficking is a demand for access to cheap goods. You know, the chocolate that we consume, most chocolate is going to have some element of forced labor or child labor in its production somewhere along the the way. And even even the labels that are intended to sort of verify that there is ethical recruitment in that labor, um, oftentimes they really can't prove that there truly is. And so just kind of thinking about globally, like our responsibility as consumers um, and how we, we on an individual level and on a bigger level, contribute to the demand that creates the environment that um, allows for labor exploitation. It's just something that really makes you pause. But then, you know, kind of moving more locally, whether we're talking about, you know, country or community level, we know that forces like homelessness can really drive folks into trafficking situations, into what I can call constrained choices, where they're making the best choice for them and their family under a limited number of options. Sometimes that leads them right into a trafficker's arms. And that links to public health in general, right? If there, if some of the issues that are currently in the public health field are addressed, some of these causes that lead to trafficking can also be addressed. Do you agree? Yeah, I mean, I agree insofar as um, I think if we take a, a truly equitable approach to public health and a human rights approach to, to all that we're doing um, and realize that how we how we on an individual level spend our dollars and then how we create policies that protect our most vulnerable. That is the essence of public health response that makes a difference in my mind. And that also not only helps prevent trafficking, but many other forms of violence. That's important for sure. And then what would you say are some of the long-term effects of trafficking on survivors? 
um, whether they are health related or mental health related. Yeah. So I'll lead by also just saying, you know, we're talking about trafficking, which is an extreme form of exploitation. And at the same time, we need to listen to those who've experienced trafficking. And one of the things that I've learned from trafficking survivors is that for some of them, it's, it is, they've had a lot of awful things happen in their life and it may not be the worst experience. That experience um, in their, their childhood of maybe their father leaving the home could have been much more devastating to them. And so just to, to be mindful of that and like how we, how we think about this. I'll answer your question mostly based on, you know, the, the literature and what we hear from survivors. But we, and I know in, in another podcast, they dive deep on the mental health um, consequences of trafficking. So I'm not going to get into a lot of detail there. But um, the health and mental health consequences of trafficking are um, pernicious and pervasive and long term. And I think one of the biggest ones that I hear from survivors across the board are the mental health consequences of trafficking, um, whether we're talking about labor trafficking or sex trafficking. And I think we as society and um, the government really need to step up and make sure that we're providing the mental health resources for those who've experienced trafficking, because it can, if those mental health needs are not addressed, those can be the things that lead somebody back into a trafficking situation. And so we have that responsibility, I, I firmly believe, to address those mental health consequences of trafficking. And so it can manifest in many different ways, whether it be complex PTSD um, to dissociative disorder to depression or what what have you. Um, in the emergency department environment, the mental health consequences, the way that we see them show up are often suicidal ideation or even attempts. Um, and there's there's a high rate as we look at the literature of suicidality among those who've experienced trafficking. And then physically, you know, <clears throat> one of the things that I'll start with the things that may be less obvious. So um, dental uh, care and dental like problems. Um, and then the need for dental care is absolutely there. And what I hear from survivors around this is not just, okay, so they, you know, their, their dental care has been neglected for, for years of their life while they were under the thumb of their trafficker, but also um, how important that is their smile in their, their healing and thriving at this stage of their life now that they're out, they're not being trafficked. And also, if those dental health needs are not met, how much it can impact their image as well as um, honestly, just their day to day life whenever I don't know if you've experienced dental pain, but it can be one of the the worst kind of pains um, that you can just not ignore. And so as they go throughout their lives, like having this persistent reminder of their trafficking situation and not having that met, met dental need met can really have horrible impact on their on their lives. So it's something that may, many people may not think of when they think of trafficking, but whether it's from the trauma of the trafficking situation to their, their teeth and their jaw, or just the fact that they didn't have access to regular dental care can have a huge impact on them. And then, um, I mean, I can really just go from head to toe and I'm not going to list off every single thing that could be a consequence of trafficking. But I think one of the things, again, that I like to think, talk about what's not obvious, the occupational health injuries related to trafficking. So, you know, you think about what somebody might be exposed to when they're working in the fields or working in the home, in, inhaling chemicals for years and years. What does that do to their lungs? Whether that's chemicals from pesticide poisoning or chemicals from cleaners, 
whether it's the fact that they, because they had no access to healthcare, that they ended up having cancers that went undiagnosed and now are ravaging their body. They're, yeah, so they're, I'm happy to point in your resources to some of the systematic reviews is, and I, I think Human Trafficking Legal Center, we collaborated on a really excellent like review of some of the legal cases and some of the healthcare consequences of trafficking. But I think I, I love pointing out the, the less obvious um, things that are, that we hear commonly among trafficking survivors. Right, that we don't even think about that's happening mm-hmm. out there. No, that's really important to discuss. And then, you know, for some of these individuals that have either are currently in the situation or, you know, have experienced it in the past, um, you know, I know we touched based upon resources that are in the healthcare setting or amongst healthcare systems, but from a social aspect, are there any resources for survivors to get back into society or to help maintain not getting back into that situation. For example, you know, people that have faced um, situations with alcoholism, you know, have AA to go to. Is there any such thing for people that have experienced trafficking? Yeah, um, there are a couple of things that I can highlight. Um, One is, I'll, I'll just start with the fact that to really prevent trafficking from happening again, we need to have the resources as society to be able to address the underlying vulnerabilities that led somebody to be trafficked in the first place. So, you know, if someone was homeless or undomiciled and now, and that was the reason that led them to their trafficking, if they do not, if they're not able to earn a living wage and, and be able to have stable housing, then they're going to end up being trafficked. It's just, you know, it's logical. And so we have to think about how how do we as society make sure that we have those resources so that when someone's identified as being trafficked, that, that we're able to help them connect to those resources. So I'll just, you know, I'll say that to start. You know, there are a growing community of of anti-trafficking direct service providers across the globe. My hope is that those, you know, that group of providers will continue to grow and grow and grow. Um, There are not enough of those organizations that are able to provide support. One of the sort of mapping tools to understand where those resources exist is to access the National Human Trafficking Hotline's website. And there in each region, you can kind of search, there's like a map-based way of looking and as well as plugging in like location. You can see what some of the resources are that are locally available to trafficking survivors. And then some survivors um, really are looking to move out of where they are. And so there are resources, if someone's foreign national, so they weren't born in the United States, and there are visa options and access to legal resources can be also facilitated through the the National Human Trafficking Hotline as, as well. So that would be the primary sort of starting point that I would put out there. And then once folks are at a, st- a stage where they want to connect, um, like you were mentioning, sort of what is the community um, among trafficking survivors? Um, there, in, uh, that's such an important question because I see it that we need to have trafficking survivors really leading this movement not just informing from the sidelines, but that the movement of anti-trafficking is centered on survivors and organizations like Survivor International Survivor Alliance and uh, National Survivor Network leading uh, in that space and are a space also for trafficking survivors to connect with others with a similar lived experience. And it, it needs to continue to grow. But yes, we are at a better place than we were nine years ago, I You know, I think we touched upon the global versus the U.S. and the differences that we face there. Um, Would you say that 
um, you know, for people that are, for people that are here in the U.S. and this initiative of growing awareness, community, advocacy, research, over the next five to 10 years, I know this is, you know, developing as we speak, but how would you see that field of movement in this area progressing over the next five to 10 years? Yeah, one of the things that I'm really excited about is our work around the intersection of anti-racism, anti-trafficking, and healthcare. And I think that absolutely needs to be where the field is moving. There are a lot of well-intentioned efforts in the anti-trafficking space as well as in the healthcare space that actually can do harm if they're not really intentionally and thoughtfully integrating the voices of those with lived experience and thinking about how do unconscious biases play out? How do these systems that we all work in perpetuate oppression and inequities? And so I'm I'm hopeful, and this is, you know, on heels work plan, but I'm hopeful not only nationally, but globally that that becomes really centered and um, that anti-racism really becomes centered in the conversation. So I see that. And then, you know, as I look globally as well, we need to get the World Health Organization to see human trafficking as a priority and to talk about this on a global scale. It is absolutely, I mean, we we talked about the health consequences of trafficking. We know that trafficking victims are having touch points with healthcare. This is absolutely a health issue. And I truly believe that I truly believe that there is no more powerful force than healthcare to respond to trafficking. And we that needs to come from the top of global healthcare, which is the World Health Organization. So if they're if they're listening, <laughs> I'm putting that out there. And you know, I I do see a glimmer of light when I see I'm optimistic when I see ministers of health engaging on this issue. Every year when I read the the U.S. TIP report, so the State Department every year puts out kind of like a report card on what all the countries in the world are doing on anti-trafficking. And I'm always re- reading it from like that healthcare lens. And every, every year over the last decade or so, there are an increasingly um, number of ministers of health that are really stepping up to the plate and engaging on this issue. And that gives me hope. I just got back from Brazil, where we were working with their public health system, which is really the safety net for the most vulnerable people in general, and definitely vulnerable to trafficking to start conversations around how the HEAL model can be applied in Brazil. And what facilitates those conversations so well is the fact that the Minister of Health is already engaged on the issue. So yeah, as I look you know, to your question of like, what do the next five to 10 years bring that equity anti-racism conversation to the table, as well as like taking what we we know works in the heel model and really applying that globally. I think we're going to be in such a better place. And, and yeah, I really do believe that there's no more powerful force than healthcare to end trafficking. So. Right. And to do our part in helping, you know, the situation and to help um, address what's happening out there. Exactly. But who, you know, who else would, you know, you think about everyone that someone who experiences trafficking comes in contact while they're being exploited. Who are they going to trust? Are they going to trust that law enforcement officer that might arrest or deport them? Are they going to trust that community member that they have contact with that like, you know, doesn't know them from Adam 
or are they going to trust that health care professional? Like we are the trusted profession and right. if we do this right. It really can open so many doors into healing and thriving for survivors. Of course. And then um, one of my last questions is, you know, you've become a leader in this situation and for someone that's starting off in the healthcare field that is interested in not only learning, but, you know, for lack of a better word, following your footsteps, what advice would you give them? I would say, um, be humble, always have a growth mindset. I am unlearning every single day. And then I would say, do your homework, read about the ways that the harms that have come from the anti-trafficking space um, and also the help and, and the positive things that have come from the anti-trafficking space come with a critical lens, question the assumptions of, of what we're doing and inform yourself with the, the growing body of literature um, from an equity and human rights and public health lens. That's so important. I liked your phrase of unlearning. You know, I think it's important for us as humans to you know, question ourselves and to unlearn some things we learned at various points in our life and, you know, ensure that we're keeping up with the times and understanding what's happening out there. Thanks. It's it, it like just perfectly describes what, what I do. Because <laughs> I used to just think <laughs> it was about growth mindset, but there are just fundamental and uh, whether we're talking about my own sort of anti-racism journey and acknowledging my privilege and the harms that I've done, but also just as it relates to assumptions that I bring to the table as for trafficking, I'm humbled every day as I learn from survivors. So I'm excited to hear what folks think of this podcast and feel free to reach out. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today at Case Confirmed. And thank you so much for having me.